a little more than a year ago, I had a fourth grader who loved school. She skipped out the door every single day to serve as the bus monitor for her public school, and she would skip back inside later that day when she got home. She was always glowing, and she was always eager to tell me about her latest science project, what she's been doing during recess. Her favorite subject was math, and she was in love with fractions and long division. Now, normally, it's bullying or just growing pains that smothers this kind of light inside children. For my child, that light was very nearly extinguished this past year thanks to COVID-19 lockdowns and the unscientific, politically driven closure of schools. What replaced it was sudden bouts of anger, waves of visible depression, and a cynicism that I struggle to even describe today. Like all of us, she's trying, and we have tried so hard to keep her engaged and feeling challenged during this time. But ultimately, the only service our public school provided during the pandemic that was of any value was guidance counseling. They've been open now for in-person learning two days a week. And last week, they were kind enough to give kids recess in 90-degree heat without their masks. Very benevolent of them. If there is any, the silver lining to this pandemic experience as a parent has been a new understanding on my part of the transactional nature of our relationship to public schools and a new sense of ownership over my kids' learning because we see now, and she sees now with a great deal of pain and a real sense of betrayal that her school doesn't really care about her or her friends or the kids in your life. Today, we're gonna get into who public government schools are actually serving and what to do with this information. Because it's just not enough to shake your fist at the clouds and curse the teachers unions if you let slide what they did to our kids this year and just send them all back into those classrooms because it's easy, because it's convenient. That's how they win and our kids lose. Before we go there, I do have a favor to ask of you. We're a new show, so please join us. Subscribe to our show on YouTube. Big shiny red button down below. Mash it. Also, follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at RightlyAJ. Elon Musk, I am told, has promised to give each of you, all of you new shiny subscribers, a Dogecoin, which... I am being told now by legal that is not true. I'm just kidding. Uh, he's going to keep it all for himself. <laughs> Joining us today from Salt Lake City is Connor Boyack. He's the president of the Libertas Institute and best-selling author of one of my favorite series of kids' books, The Tuttle Twins, which are currently being turned into an animated series. Welcome, Connor. And in Studio 3B with me today is Corey DeAngelis. He's the national director of research for the American Federation of Children and a scholar at not one but two big-time think tanks, the Cato Institute and the Reason Foundation. Thank you for coming out, Corey. Thank you so much for having me. Guys, the New York Post broke a big story the other week that the CDC was being lobbied by the American Federation for Teachers, a.k.a. the National Teachers Unions, on the guidance for how uh, the CDC should write about school reopenings and governments should allow students to go back to school. Um, are you surprised at all by this? Because I, as a parent who does not follow this as closely as people who watch the show might think, I was surprised. I did not know this kind of thing would go on. 
I think it was shocking to a lot of people, but for people who have been following this really closely, it really just goes to show and confirm what we've known all along, that this entire school reopening debate has been more to do with politics and power dynamics than safety and the needs of children and their families. I mean, look, you have two instances where the CDC guidance was essentially verbatim from what the teachers union, the American Federation of Teachers suggested. And one of the two uh, 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 things that were, were that were taken verbatim in the guidance was completely unscientific in that it included community transmission rates of the virus as a prerequisite for reopening the schools for in-person learning, which obviously kept schools, uh, made the case to keep schools closed longer, much stronger, which gave Because there would be transmission between students, right? But the question is whether or not anybody actually gets sick from the virus. Well, that and should the community transmission level be used as a metric for reopening the schools when there is no scientific basis for a relationship between the overall community spread and the spread in the schools. I mean, just look a few months ago in New York City, for example, the community-wide transmission rate was about 6 or 7%, but in the schools, it was less than a tenth of that, only about 0.5%, which the schools are safer than just about anywhere else. Um, so there was no strong uh, evidence to include community transmission in the reopening guidance uh, that was issued by the CDC. But look, once you start thinking about it in terms of power dynamics, this was a way for the uh, the teachers unions to use their political power to get grant themselves a stronger bargaining position based on faulty science through the CDC guidance. So it's absolutely ridiculous. The people who missed out in all of this were the families and their children. Who, who was lobbying for the children to, to allow them to have the choice to go to in-person learning and well, you, what happened? You just made your transition over uh, to the Federation for Children. I, I always thought it was funny that <laughs> the American Federation for Teachers, like, it is for them, right? And your organization is literally for the students. Amazing that nobody already uh, uh, thought that that needed to exist. Uh, Connor, uh, where are you at on this? Um, was this at all surprising to you? It wasn't at all surprising. I think we need to remember what's happening on kind of a more meta level with all this. And and my perception is that we're facing kind of a trust crisis. You know, at the outset of all of this, when you have Fauci coming out and saying, don't wear masks, and suddenly it's masks, and then it's two masks, what parents have been feeling for the past year is is like this is a game of political whack-a-mole, right? Is this dangerous for kids? Do we need to have them masks? Should we keep them home from school? Are we allowed to let them go? Do we need ventilation in all the schools? And do we need to lobby for, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to change infrastructure? Uh, like, what do we need to do? And and parents are kind of caught up in this swirl of misinformation, changing information, where when you have the CDC coming out, when it is news that this is being, you know, political arm twisting, and even grandstanding by the unions trying to flex their muscle, I think this is further evidence for parents to feel like they are uh, justified in distrusting a lot of these institutions, but also even their own school. And a lot of parents are feeling... Um, you know, disconnected from that because people have often, even if the people say that they don't trust the school system, they always trust their school, right? Oh, I don't, of I don't course. like the, the mm-hmm. schools. I love my teacher. And we're seeing even now where, well, wait a minute, if the schools and the teachers are going to go along with this, can I even trust them? And I think there's a lot of downstream implications of, of what that means in the future. Yeah. And, and I will just say, um, 
you know, Stephen, you mentioned earlier that there is one silver lining that people are waking up to the problems of the K-12 public school system. I think that's actually true here as well. We have nationwide polling. At least three national polls now have found huge upticks in support for educational choice, school choice, or what I call funding students as opposed to institutions from last year. And what some of the biggest increases in support for having the money follow the child have been among parents with children in the public school system. One from American Federation for Children, for example, found a around a nine to 10 percentage point uptick in support for funding students directly relative to last year among families with children in the public school system, they found out that the school system just isn't there for them. And others have even found out that even if they do like their public school, they don't want to feel powerless ever again like they did this past year. They may like their public school, but they don't want to be put in this position where they don't have an exit option just in case Mm -hmm. going forward. And so we have a, a huge silver lining here is that people are figuring out that there's no good reason to fund closed institutions when you can fund the students directly instead. I've struggled this, with this, this as somebody who who went to public schools for the majority of my life myself. I, I grew up in public school. I only did homeschool for one year, being third grade, and then I did private for uh, sixth and seventh, a private Christian school, and then I went back into the public school system. I enjoyed all of it. I loved all of the aspects of my education, and I don't have any ill will towards public schools. But again, like after this year, when the schools send out congratulatory gifts to all the families, my household included, being like, hooray, your kid congratulated and completed fourth grade, and I get that t-shirt in the mail, I just was mad. I was like, this is what you have for me after everything that has happened this year. Kids in Florida have been going to school for months, (laughs) and my child is currently called a Zoomie, meaning she goes to school two days a week on Zoom, has Mondays off, and the other two days she's wearing a mask indoors in really hot classrooms and on playgrounds every day. Um, it, It just makes me incredibly angry, and I have a hard time trying to funnel that in a constructive manner. Well, and, and look at... I, I- and look at Florida really quickly. They spend about 29% less than the national average, about $10,700 per student per year. They've been essentially open this whole time or given families the option of in-person instruction. But then you have places like California that spends about 38% more per student per year than Florida. They took the opposite approach, but they also have much stronger teacher unions in California. And in fact, there have been six studies. I've done one of them. It's peer-reviewed in Social Science Quarterly, co-authored with MIT's Christos McCready's finding that places with stronger teachers unions, all else equal, were substantially less likely to reopen their schools for in-person instruction. And we also found that places that were more blue were less likely to reopen their schools for in-person instruction, all else Mm -hmm. equal. And that a substantial number of these studies, at least a few of them, including my own with Christos McCready's, found no statistically significant relationship between reopening decisions in the public school sector and the risk of the virus as measured by COVID cases or deaths. And I want to I want to ask you about that. I want to get Connor in first real quick. What were you? There's an interesting point here, I think, to make as we talk with elected officials about education policy, what they tell us very often is that they only hear from one group, right? This is a well-funded group. These people are mobilized. And to the extent that this group, specifically the teachers union, discusses kids, the sentiment is often that the kids are being used as props 
not, right? That this is not that they are the true beneficiaries and that we are actually thinking about what is best, Stephen, for your child, what is best for my child. I myself am a product of public school. I wasn't homeschooled at all. And so we, uh, you know, so many of the people are in this system. We got to do right by them. But are we doing right by them? I think we'll get into this in the conversation a little bit later that I think individuality is needed, flexibility, customization, right? We can't have command and control one size fits all, but that is what the system is built upon. That is what the teachers' unions often prefer. Why? Because it's a single point of control, right? If there's a single lever of power, then they can turn that to the extent that they have influence up at Capitol Hill in these various states. And so teachers, uh, uh, excuse me, I should say parents, and their children are often used as the intermediaries and the props to justify the political power decisions that are being made. And I think we see that in spades is what's, with what has been happening in these school reopenings is that this really hasn't been about the children. This has been about the teachers. And I think those two are not always aligned, unfortunately. Parents, whether they lean Republican, Democrat, Independent, and some of the polls that you've referenced, support the ideas associated with school choice, having the money follow the students, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't see that translate into action in state houses, particularly with Democratic control. I was getting my somewhat occasional dose of the Ben Shapiro show the other day, and he was doing this expose sort of going into the history of the teachers union. I myself, I didn't know that public sector unions and teachers unions didn't even exist until the 60s. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. as an entity that that advocate for these state employees, the money is circular. They're paid by public dollars, and then they lobby with public dollars to increase their pay, increase all of the other things, and, and advocate for the positions that they would like to see uh, realized in schools. And we don't call that blatant corruption. It makes no sense to me. I'm sure you could explain it better, like how that, that flow of money works. Yeah, and well, it's it's a form of extortion, what, what we've seen this past year, in that you've even had some school districts that were going remote because it wasn't safe enough for in-person learning. But then they were opening the same public school buildings and charging families twice, essentially, out of pocket and once to the property tax system as well for the privilege of sending their kids to in-person child care services. But if it was safe enough for in-person child care services while paying twice, why wasn't it safe enough for in-person learnings? Um, there's a ton of these uh, unscientific, just weird things that happened over the past year that really just goes to show that this was more about power than anything else and and their power and their uh position uh, when it comes to being able to lobby for policies that don't work for So can I ask parents. you a question? Because given all of this, I've heard these stories, and it's egregious. And you go like, all right, so teachers' unions, they advocate for whatever improves the lives and the standing of teachers and increases their power. Um, But is it right to think of teachers themselves as foes, right? Is it right to think of them as sort of enemies of progress or enemies of your family's interests? Because I struggle with that a lot. Like they're good people, Mm. but they're in this system that just does not produce outcomes geared towards children. Yeah, I don't think it's the problem with the individuals in the system. And in fact, the teachers unions often lobby for policies that help the union bosses, not so much the individuals on the ground. Just look at the data between 1992 and 2014 nationwide 
Per pupil education expenditures in public schools in the United States increased by about 27% after adjusting for inflation, but teacher salaries in real terms actually dropped by 2% over the same period because the teacher unions lobby to put more and more people into the buildings, and so you get more administrative bloat and support staff, but then the, the money mm-hmm. doesn't go towards the classroom and the individual teachers, so it's good for teacher union bosses by getting more union dues and political power through having more power and numbers, but it's not all that great a thing for the individual members in the system. And what I pointed out before is that, look, the private schools fought to reopen over the past year. They've been open essentially the entire time, whereas the public school teachers unions fought for the opposite. And I don't think it's a difference of motivations or intentions. I don't think that people in the private sector are inherently better than people in the public sector or more competent or anything like that. I think the main difference is one of incentives. And essentially, anyone else in their position would do the same thing uh, when you can have your benefits remain about the same in terms of job security and pay while then not while not having to commute to work and not having to, to provide child care services over the past year. So mm-hmm. I don't think it's the problem with the people in the system. The problem is the system itself. And the only way that we're ever going to fix that messed up set of incentives that's baked into the government school system is to fund the kids directly and to allow them to provide bottom up accountability to those institutions. More particularly, what I would say to, to add on to what Corey said is that uh, by funding the students themselves, what we actually achieve is competition, right? What any monopoly does not want is competition. That's what unions don't want. They don't want the accountability. They don't want the diversity of choice. And so we see that across the state as some of these choice bills, these very pieces of legislation move forward. Uh, who fights it? Well, it's the teachers. Well, wait a minute. If parents want this, if they know what's best for their children, if this can and does, as we see across the country, serve children better by giving them the specific services and benefits that will help them, then why should teachers not be on the side of that? So, Stephen, your point, I think your question is actually very accurate and a good one in the sense that not all teachers are made alike. There are a lot of teachers who kind of buy into this political system and try and use those levers of power to get gain for themselves. But there's a lot of teachers, in fact, many trying to lead these unions. Mm-hmm. We've had Supreme Court battles over this. Um, and, and in many states where you have the ability now to come out of the unions, many teachers are because they recognize that not only are they not being served well by this organization, but in some respects, it's actually hindering the, the positive and productive relationships that they're trying to have with the students uh, and their parents who they were uh, embarked on this type of career to serve in the first place and not be part of some big political machine that so many of them unfortunately are. And there, and there are actually 28 studies that look at the school choice competition from private schools on the public school student outcomes. 26 of the 28 studies find statistically significant positive effects of private school choice competition on the students who don't even use the programs that remain in the public schools because the public schools start to scratch their head a little bit and allocate resources more efficiently. And in fact... Five studies on the topic that I know of have found that either through charter school or private school competition, the public school teacher salaries tend to rise in response to that because the resources become allocated more efficiently. So while you hear the narrative that if you're for school choice, you're anti-public school teacher, the evidence shows the complete opposite, that in fact, school choice leads to better salaries for the public school teachers because the system otherwise generally does not have any particularly strong incentive to allocate the resources effectively. And what better way to allocate resources than to put it into the classroom towards the most important educational resource in the school, which happens to be the teacher. So we have evidence 
on that. And But look, at the end of the day, education funding exists to meet the needs of students and the education system exists to meet the needs of students and their families, not the other way around. Education funding should follow children to wherever they're getting an education, which still could be the public school, and that option should absolutely still be on the table. I want to I want to talk about systems here in a little bit, but first, Connor, I, I want to ask you a question. So you write a lot for parents and for children, um, all the books that you've written, and I, I want your advice on something. How do you talk to your kid about what has happened this year? with public schools. And what I mentioned earlier about that, that sense of betrayal within families in regards to their public schools, that's kind of hard to com compartmentalize. Like when we're sitting and having dinner and talking about these schools being closed and the incredibly totalitarian conditions inside the building when they're allowed to be open, you can tell that like the child sort of has internalized some of this and they understand it's wrong. They understand that it is not, that it feels bad. But you as the parent don't want to like unleash at the dinner table over like how awful the, the teachers are and how awful the system is. That doesn't strike me as super constructive. How would you talk to kids about this issue and what they've experienced? This is a very interesting question, as I think not only as a parent with my own kids, but also as an author of, of kids' books trying to teach many more. And, you know, I'm biased, of course, in the experiences I've had with my own children. So I'll use that for whatever it's worth. And, and that is, you're right, Stephen, you don't want to kind of project negativity and uh, try and, you know, propagandize your child almost as to the many of the problems that they're experiencing. But what I've noticed writing books for kids and talking to so many kids across the country now is I've underestimated them. Like when I was a young dad, I underestimated the resiliency of kids, the awareness of kids, how much they soak in. I've been amazed through this whole experience over the past year how my kids have been talking to other kids about what has been happening, trying to make sense of it, learning about their different experiences. What is happening at your school? Oh, in my school we can do this. Why is that? How do we resolve the fact that at a school just down the road you have to you know, wear a mask and you don't get recess, but here we can? You know, if this is a virus affecting the whole country, why do we see such disparate decision making and action happen? And kids, right, they really crave consistency and order and predictability. And uh, they've been having to grapple that. So I, as a dad, and trying to talk to my kids and trying to help them understand uh, that so many things are inherently political and, and this whole process as well. And what does that mean? Well, it means that there are people who are making decisions and they have power to make decisions within their domain. Sometimes they do it for good purposes. Sometimes they do it for bad purposes. Sometimes they do it altruistically because they're trying to help other people and do the right thing. They're well-intentioned, even if maybe sometimes they're mistaken, but they're trying to do the right thing. Sometimes you have people who are selfish and they're seeking for power. They won't admit their mistakes. They double down. Not, now it's not one masks, it's two. <laughs> now it's, you know, it's not uh, a conspiracy anymore to say that, you know, maybe this whole virus originated in a lab, whereas those who said that for months have been deplatformed. Things mm -hmm. change. People make these decisions. And kids can wrap their minds around that. They can give people a space yeah. to make mistakes. They understand that there's good and bad. They know that some people are going to struggle for power and try and wield power over others. And at least when you boil it down into that language, I can chalk it up for my kids and so many others to say, this is just the issue of the day. We've dealt with issues in the past. There are going to be more in the future. But what we see in this particular issue is, once again, people using whatever information they have and the fears that are motivating those decisions. And those decisions are coming out and manifesting themselves in many different ways. 
it's almost like people watching at the mall trying to understand, <laughs> you know, yeah. why, why people make the actions and the behaviors that they do. And kids enjoy that. And I think that's at least a language with which we can kind of communicate the big problems that we're facing with our kids. Almost time for another Tuttle Twins book on uh, what happened over the past year. <laughs> We just came out with it last week, actually. Ah. Thanks for the plug. <laughs> well, I'm going to look that up. I've got a pile of the Tuttle Twins books at home, and we could use a new one. Um, so with the the disruption that COVID caused for public schools, there's been, you know, I, I talked about like silver lining, right? Like as parents, you know, we've been like, oh, like maybe it is our responsibility to teach history to our kids and actually sit down and help them with their math homework. And then there's also that silver lining of we have seen that kids can learn from home mm -hmm. and get through a curriculum and ingest certain sorts of, uh, of subject matter and be just fine, right? Like, I think there has been a real mental health detriment to different kids. I know it has not been good for my own child. Um, but we've seen that they don't need to go to school five days a week, sit in there for six hours and listen to lecture and do whatever they're doing. So what would you keep from this entire experience and what would you then toss out? Yeah, so, you know, a lot in the media has has talked about the harms of remote learning and how it's caused a lot of trouble for children overall on average and has led to inequities by different uh, background yeah. characteristics. But even if that's true, and I do believe it's true that there has been substantial learning loss and mental health issues over the past year, there is going to be some segment of the population who wouldn't have otherwise chosen to homeschool or do some type of virtual charter school or something who yep. will be interested in that and say, oh, yeah. this actually worked okay for my family in this situation, or um, maybe my virtual school did a better job than this other public uh, virtual school. So I think we will see a decrease in the proportion of students who remain in the public school system long term because they're, like it or not, there was a taste of home-based education and remote learning that some people, I don't know the percentage, uh, are actually going to want to continue long term. So you may see an increase in, in homeschooling. In fact, yeah. the latest Census Bureau numbers from the American Pulse uh, survey conducted by the U.S. Census Bureau found about a tripling of the homeschool population looking at the latest uh, week of data from it, it was pr it was about three percent pre-pandemic levels of percentage of families homeschooling to uh, the most recent survey being about 11 percent of households reporting that they're homeschooling their children formally, not enrolled in a public school doing that at home, but actually homeschooling. So we could we could see that that trend continues in the, in the future as well. And, uh, you know, right now we're seeing public school enrollment down anywhere between three to five percent, depending on the state. And uh, that that could uh, be a problem for a lot of public. You schools were too. you were on Michael Malice's show uh, a little while back and, and he said this. So it's, it's his thought. But like 11 percent like that could save this country. That amount of people switching over to homeschooling passion-based education, really learning about things that they want to learn about with their families. Like, it really stinks right now. But down the road, we might see that yield real fruit. Well, and one more thing before Connor jumps in is, um, you know, remote learning has been horrible for a lot of kids overall. Doesn't mean that all remote learning is bad. But another silver lining here is that even though remote learning was horrible for a lot of children, 
a lot of families got to see what was going on in the classroom, mm -hmm. whether that be exactly. inadequate education, political indoctrination, or what have you. I mean, I saw one viral video on Twitter where the teacher was trying to explain the electoral college yeah. by saying that it was a uh, secret society of people in back rooms making decisions. And so they didn't even get the content right. But then other families, particularly conservative families, we're seeing that there was a political bias in the classroom as well. And so now we have a lot of bills in different state legislatures that are addressing divisive concepts and then also just transparency in, in curriculum. Families want to know what's going on in the classroom. And that's another way in which the teacher unions have actually overplayed their hand. And what mm -hmm. I would say is that the teacher unions, for all the bad that they've done over the past year, have done more to advance the concept of school choice than anyone could have ever imagined. Yes. I think that's exactly right. And Stephen, to your question about what we would keep, I would keep flexibility. It's what we want as adults. Everyone's talking about the benefits of remote work, or I can come into the office just two days out of the week instead of five, you know, or I can go work out of the library. Like we crave the flexibility. We're seeing it in the workforce for adults. Why are we depriving our kids of the benefits that we ourselves want and we know make for productive and happy, happy humans? And so, yes, remote school isn't for everyone, but flexibility is. You talk about your kid five days a week, six hours hours a day, what I heard from so many parents is not only the awakening they were having that Corey just talked about, about the content, but the amazement that their kid could get done in like 45 minutes or an hour and a half yep. what they were sitting in class for <laughs> for six hours. And so it doesn't just need to be, you know, sitting in class for six hours versus sitting at home behind a computer for six hours. It can be, here's the expectations. Here's what you need to learn. Here's a self-guided learning process with teachers available as needed and get it done at your own speed. And so many kids are being held back and being deprived, are not rising to the occasion because we have a system that treats them all with conformity. One size fits all. You must learn the same things in the same way at the same time. And I think what I would keep and what we need to keep moving forward, what competition would allow far more for is flexibility, variety in learning modes, styles, paces that speak to different kids. We know this as adults, that we all need diversity. Yep. We all do things differently. Why would we deprive our children of the same thing that is an essential human characteristic of what makes happy humans? Yeah, and I don't think it needs to be a conversation of totally factory model public school education or homeschooling. It could be a mix of these two things as well. You could have some in-person, some homeschool. They have these things called hybrid homeschool. You have homeschool co-ops where you have some in-person in learning as well. Something that big that happened this past year is the idea of pandemic pods or what people have been calling micro schools or the one-room schoolhouse for a long time where right when schools closed in March 2020, you had families seeking out these pandemic pods, five to 10 children getting together in a household and essentially economizing and outsourcing the process of homeschooling by making it a little bit more easily by uh, easier by having more families contribute to that uh, homeschool or, or micro school. Uh, so I think that's going to be something that stays as well. And I want to say the, uh, the best way to maximize that flexibility going forward and freedom on the part of the families is these education savings accounts that are being introduced in at least 30 states this past year where the money 
follows the child to wherever they're getting an education. They could use some of the money for a class in the public school, a class in the private school if they want, if if the system allows them to do that. Or tutoring, and they, right? And they could use it so, for tutoring. So my kid's like struggling with a certain concept, uh, doing the Zoom-based school for public schooling, but then taking that money and being like, all right, I'm going to send her to a math tutor in the afternoons because she's not getting the help that she needs via Zoom. Yeah, and look, we, we spend over $15,000 per child per year. It's going to be way more than that this year yeah. with the additional you know, stimulus funding. $190 billion has already been approved for K-12 education from the federal government this year, which is over twice the amount that the federal government typically uh, allocates to K-12 education each year. So we poured a ton of money into the system, which was supposed to be meant for safely reopening schools. We, that's a whole nother conversation altogether. It's not going to be used for that. I don't think it ever was meant for that. They couldn't even get an amendment into the Senate uh, to, to try to make that funding conditional upon actually reopening the really? schools. They, they, they failed, uh, failed that amendment on a 50-50, completely partisan party line vote. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, we spend over $15,000 per child per year. Why not have a significant portion, if not all of that, follow the child to wherever they're getting an education? You can afford a lot of private school tuition with that or even do a, a you can absolutely afford homeschooling uh, for that amount of money. Guys, I want to back up a little bit to systems here. So Connor, you are the author of Passion Driven Education. I am about three quarters of the way through it right now. Really focuses on how we got here, the problems uh, that we created for ourselves by making uh, a system where kids are treated like products on a conveyor belt. Uh, I want you to give quick your, your, your sort of your, uh, your diagnoses of, of the system that we've built. And it kind of makes sense then why it has gone so wrong, because I would like to then talk about solutions and different education models we could consider. So the very brief history of the system is that it was in, intended to be institutionalized and systemic. It was intended to take disparate Americans of different socio-cultural backgrounds and meld them into one for cultural cohesion. The architects of the system have been wildly successful. Uh, we, we have had in spades the results of what they intended to be, the subordination of the individual with all of its uniqueness and variety to the common standard, right? And, and so what we see is what's called the conveyor belt. As I said earlier, it's every child learns every same thing in the same way at the same time. When was the last time you needed to know what a mitochondria was? <laughs> like, the there are all these the things cell. that were... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went to like, public school. And that's all we know. Right? I can draw a mitochondria, equation. but I couldn't tell you what it is. <laughs> but but all of these this thing, the system is propped up for its own sake. Like as I said, I'm a product of public school. And we think that uh, the system is worth, you know, maybe tinkering at the edges, but few people question whether this system is, is, is right inherently. Why do we treat all children the same way and think that everyone needs to know the same things and that they learn them in the same way when we ourselves as adults know that that's not how it works yeah, for us? Yeah, Connor, one of the, so, the things that I learned from reading your book that I had never thought about ever was why do we even split up kids based on their age? Why do we practice age segregation? Again, just not a question I'd ever thought to ask. I was like, well, this is the way it is. Uh, the 12-year-olds and the 11-year-olds learn together. There's a fifth grade, a sixth grade, a seventh grade. 
uh, what value would the older kids have to the younger kids? In fact, I was always sort of made to think that if you put older kids with younger kids, the younger kids will be in danger in some way and that <laughs> it will be bad for them because they don't have anything in common. But that's not how human beings have learned and grown as communities for thousands of years. <laughs> Exposure across age groups actually helps people learn quicker. I'll say a little bit and throw it to Corey. There's a fantastic book by Peter Gray called Free to Learn that talks about exactly that issue about how humans in past societies have always done it this way. And so we have this fake artificial experiment in modern society known as public schooling that is really undermining how we as humans have always interacted and learned. And so really what, what's needed is the same flexibility. You ask why we do it that way with age segregation and so many other things in the school, school system, and that is because of institutional and logistical convenience, right? If you're going to educate hundreds of million kid, uh, millions of kids in a system, you do want processes. You do want conformity. You do want to sub, uh, suppress the variety and the different variables and personalities into something that's moldable, predictable, and easy to interact with and control. And so the competition that we've talked about and the flexibility that's needed is what is going to combat that, is what is going to allow us to make sure that children are being educated in an authentic way that speaks to them as individuals, in a productive way that allows them to learn not random mitochondria and math formulas <laughs> that they'll never use, right? But actual things that are applicable and relevant to their young lives that spark curiosity and give them an ambition to continue learning. And that's what we see so little of in the system is the suppression of that creativity and curiosity. Oh, teacher, when am I ever going to need to know this? Oh, someday you'll need to know it. So just memorize it for the test. And, and I think we need to move away from this. And to Corey's point with the unions uh, accelerating school choice, I think overall COVID has done that and really shaken awake a lot of parents to see we liked this flexibility. We liked seeing that our kids were reading things that they didn't need to. They were more curious. And I think parents are going to latch onto that and want to figure out a way to preserve that in the years ahead. The best thing I did this year with all the free time that my daughter had in between classes because these Zoom classes would not begin until like 8.30 and then they would end in the middle of the day and they would have all this free time to themselves and also she learns at her own pace and gets stuff done quickly. I, we just came up with projects that she wanted to do. I asked her and it's because I was reading your book, Connor. I was like, what do you want to learn more about? And she was like, I would love to learn more about invasive species and what to do about uh, about those things in different environments. And I was like, okay, I'll take you to the library, pick out three books, and then by the end of next week, you owe me a three-page paper uh, and a board presentation explaining what this is, why it's a problem, and show me what you've learned. Um, and that was fun for her. She had a great time doing it. And now she knows that issue inside and out in a way I feel like she wouldn't have gotten before. But you also write that the thing we do at home is that sometimes we mimic the public school model mm. where the parent becomes the teacher. And I sat around toiling over what am I going to get her to do this week? What project can I give her? And I almost had to step back and be like, oh no, now I'm the authoritarian <laughs> because I'm forcing her into doing projects. And that's what I can't square is where do you sort of like mix direction versus freedom? Yeah, I think it's... Um, there's. Yeah, I just want to say I think it's interesting, you know, this uh, passion-driven education discussion and how it kind of intertwines with the school reopening debate. I mean, yes, uh, I want everybody to have the option of in-person learning, but one, even once the schools get opened in, in every place for five days a, work, a week in-person instruction, 
it still is the same system that wasn't working for millions of children before that that you know that right. the 2019 NAEP results the nation's report card just came out for science uh, yesterday finding that only a third of kids in fourth and eighth grade were proficient in science and in 12th grade only about a fifth of them were proficient in science uh, so you have um, the same system that yeah people should have the option of going back to in person but if it's not working and and if there's a lot of other negative forms of socialization occurring in those school settings, such as drugs and gang activity and bullying. Uh, that's not a that's not a place that a lot of families want to send their kids God back forbid to. They be home learning about their parents' values and talking with their siblings more. They need to be around criminal elements at school. That, but this that's is, much better I mean, this is just another reason why you know reopening and having the option of in person is just the very bare minimum, and we we should extend choice even further to families to be able to choose the type of school setting that works for them mm -hmm. and then whether in person or remote private or public or charter or homeschooling or some other form of home slash uh, public or, or any type of mix of those services Corey Corey mentioned earlier this tripling of homeschooling, and we're going to see a lot more of this variety that he just mentioned beyond just homeschooling. What's been really interesting for me um, is writing this book and kind of being in these homeschool circles nationwide. With this influx of parents who have embarked on this new adventure, there's a lot of trepidation. And why is that? It's it's to your question, Stephen. These parents feel like they need to know all the things. I now need <laughs> yep. to be a math teacher and a science teacher and a history teacher. And parents feel inadequate. Why? Because by and large, they're the products of public school <laughs> that did not <laughs> adequately educate them meaningfully in a way where they would retain all this knowledge yeah. and, and not just do a pump and dump where they memorized it for the test and then it's out of their head. And so these parents feel stressed out like, wait, I need to know all these things to teach them to my children. There's a reason that Sir Ken Robinson's videos have consistently been among the top TED Talks. And that is because in these videos, I should say the late Sir Ken Robinson, he's no longer with us, unfortunately. He talks about how education for humans is more like the principles of agriculture. We think of it in this very industrialized warehouse commodity conveyor belt system. But he talks about how it's really the principles of agriculture, that these things are baked into the DNA of how we work. And just like with a plant, if you provide it, you know, soil and sun and water it is going to grow into whatever is baked into that uh that seed just as with humans with your kids with my kids right if we simply provide them the resources we need steven you took your kid to the library and we're doing a little project if we just give them basic resources access to information good heavens we have the internet today like it's never been easier to provide our children uh the the agricultural-esque resources of education to empower them to learn what matters to them and what they're curious about, to learn about the world. That is how education really is. And it's a sigh, it's a, it's a relief for these homeschooling parents when I'm able to communicate these same ideas that Sir Ken Robinson did, because they realize, oh wait, I don't have to know advanced algebra. <laughs> I don't have to know all the particulars of American history. I just need to be a resource provider. I'm good at Googling. I can help <laughs> my kids find whatever resources they need. And it becomes so much easier and better for the child. Well, well, Connor, you have a bunch of quantum mechanics on the board behind you. You must that public schooling must have been so great. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, you learned uh, to write but so I, after public. <laughs> I always think it's interesting that a lot of people will point out, like, "Hey, you went to government-run schools, but you you say that people should be able to choose private schools or some other option or homeschooling." 
And I'll point out that, well, I think I did okay despite uh, all of the negative influences that happened in, in the government school system. It, we could have turned out better without uh, if we were homeschooled. Who knows? Yeah, maybe you would actually have quantum mechanics on the board uh, <laughs> behind you. But I, the way I like to explain it to people is, you know, just imagine if uh, we had compulsory education laws that started at the age of six months. People would probably say that, well, if we didn't have those, people want to learn how to walk. Compulsory uh, education. I thought we do have that, right? Not that at the age of six months. It's, it starts. <laughs> oh, six at, months. Yeah, I was thinking six years. If we years. did start it at six months, people would think that no one would understand how to walk without the government school system. <laughs> no, I got. And and just speaking of that, the compulsory element. Um, out in Utah, there was a development as far as compulsory education goes, uh, where Utah has walked back its truancy laws, wherein parents can face uh, like criminal charges, right, for not sending their kids to school. What's going on with that? And what's the what's the end goal there? So I run a think tank, Libertas Institute, and our team proposed that here in Utah for the legislature to consider using the example of COVID. Like, look, guys, all these people are not showing up to Zoom. They're forgetting their whatever. There's a lot of flexibility, and that creates a lot of, you know, slip deadlines, and my butt isn't in the seat at the right hour <laughs> that it should be. What we need to afford parents during these challenging times is more flexibility. So let's uh, not... Uh, enforce compulsory education. Let's not have any truancy laws that really can't be enforced that well right now anyways. Let's give parents this vote of confidence to say, we're with you. We're not here to punish. We're here to support. And so the legislature almost unanimously, totally bipartisan, we had like socialist Democrat type legislators standing up and saying, this is good. We need to do this for parents. And so in the, the years ahead, it's protecting be the most marginalized people, right? Like they do it so that the people who yeah. are having to work two jobs just to keep uh, their apartment in order and hold on to a roof over their head, they're doing it uh, vocally to protect those people. But then once this ends, they will go back to trying to treat them like criminals if they can't make those ends meet. And that's what doesn't make sense to me is how do you make this stick and make it stick beyond COVID? Well, I think that remains to be seen. We'll yeah. find out. I think, yeah, the way that the way you do it is with these pilot programs like they're doing in Utah, you can point to examples and say it wasn't so bad, was it, um, uh, with this in, in, in play. Um, but I will say I, I haven't really talked much about compulsory education laws in my uh, few years at think tanks, uh, mostly because I think uh, homeschooling laws, as long as they're not super regulated, pretty much allow you to get around compulsory education laws and that. You don't have to send your kid to the government school if you're doing a form of homeschooling, and maybe you have to fill out a form. But I understand in some states it's more uh, more regulations than than in others. Connor, are you a big proponent of the principle of unschooling? I am. Yeah, I think it's a kind of a weird term that a lot of people don't know about. It has a little bit of a hippie origin in the <laughs> uh, '60s and '70s in Massachusetts with the Sudbury School in particular. But but unschooling really is just this question of divorcing schooling from education. We all are educated. Even post-schooling, we continue to be educated. Uh, as, as Corey gave the example of if we 
started education or schooling rather at six months, right? We'd reframe what education is actually like for young children and think that we need schooling. Unschooling is just this confidence that we as, as parents can help our children learn in an authentic way that we ourselves do, that they don't need to have butts in chairs and learn only what they are told that some faceless curriculum committee decided for them, <laughs> that they can have an authentic human experience just like we adults can. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that is the proper way that all humans learn. And so let's not subject our children to this fake, arbitrary, modern experiment that we have. But actually, like we've discussed, if societies throughout history have done, let's provide for them a true learning experience. And that's what you might call unschooling. Now, I want everybody to check out Connor's book, Passion Driven Education. You can find it on Amazon and the likes. It's a great read. Uh, I want to wind down here with a quick question for you. So what are three things that each of you would encourage public school parents to do after the year that we have just experienced? What would you say are like the starting points for people, three things for the year ahead to start changing the way that they actually act and inter uh, interact with the education system? I would say to fight back by pushing for uh, school choice policies. I mean, some states have already introduced legislation this year. Over 30 states have had in legislation introduced. Over a dozen of them have already gotten these signed into law and more are on the way. A lot of people are calling this the year of school choice or the year of educational choice because we've seen more action this year than, than we have in, in any recent history when it comes to expanding educational freedom. So I would say get on board with accessing, uh, trying to get your state to access more educational freedom as well. So contacting your legislators, uh, looking for specific bills in your state. I have a website of the bills at Educational Freedom Institute. If you want to Google the active legislation map, you can go there and see if there's a bill in play in your state. So that's one thing you could do. Two, you could uh, try to fight back in other ways with uh, the court system. There are some parents in Virginia and other places across the, the country that have fought back legally with schools that have kept their, their doors closed. Uh, and if, in some places in the country, you still have not, you don't have 100% full-time in-person instruction for students. And every state constitution has something in it along the lines that says that the state shall provide a free system of public schooling. And we've, simp we've uh, for a long time thought of that as a full-time in-person yeah. learning environment. And you can't really say it's adequate either if it, they're not doing a good job with, with educating the children. So you can fight back in the courts. Um, three, uh, just, I guess, look into alternative learning environments. You already had an opportunity to, to, to experiment with homeschooling this past year or some type of home-based education. So perhaps looking into things like micro schools and pandemic pods or homeschooling co-ops uh, if homeschooling full-time doesn't work for you, maybe some some of these other alternatives might work. Connor? Building off of what Corey just said, I think the first thing every parent should do is network with other parents who are doing things that you think you might like to do or learn more about. Facebook groups or other online communities, find people in your community, ask them questions. At the outset of COVID, when all this blew up, my wife and I were doing town halls just for neighbors who were finding themselves with all these questions. Well, wait a minute, do I need to homeschool now? And what does that look like? 
And so uh, for parents out there, reach out to people in your network and ask them for input. You're going to find a lot of support. The second is, you know, we'd rattle off several resources I have that I think would be essential for parents to learn more about. Go pull up Sir Ken Robinson's TED Talks and give them a watch. Go check out Free to Learn by Peter Gray, an amazing book. Check out Passion Driven Education, which Stephen is reading right now. I think gaining more insight into why the system is the way it is and then what we can do about it. I think is going to be very confidence building for parents. And the third thing I would say is just do whatever you need in your own life as a parent to be willing to take ownership over your child's education. I think the problem is for too long we've delegated that to a system that we've assumed is doing things the right way with the best of attentions. And as we've discussed, that's not quite the case and perhaps increasingly so of late. And so we need to be willing to treat the system not as daycare uh, with a bunch of downsides and, and mm. systemic problems that can actually harm our children. We need to be willing, if we're having children, <laughs> to take ownership over their education. And that doesn't mean that we have to homeschool. There are all these other opportunities that Corey was mentioning earlier. But we do need to take ownership and we need to make sure that we're making the right decisions for our children and not assuming that other people are going to make those best decisions for our children on our behalf. 2021, I hope it will be the year of school choice. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I feel like everybody has already gotten an earful of good news from both of our guests today about what could get better about education, but we still like to end every show on some specifically positive news from everybody here at the table. So, Connor, why don't you take us away? Anything good going on? You know, I think there's a lot of good stuff going on. I, I like to be an optimist, and for all the challenges that we have, there's still a lot of great things happening. I'm going to pick a related one to our subject today. Um, there was a study recently out of the UK finding that kids are reading more and they're reading longer, more complicated books, which is improving moods overall. This was uh, triggered, they found, as a result, of course, of COVID uh, as kind of a coping mechanism to solve boredom and being at home a lot more. But the response has been very interesting as they, the study's authors and others were talking about the findings in the study. Uh, I'm more curious to see what the long-term implications are. We've often had a literacy problem of kids reading for leisure and for enjoyment. I think we have a civic literacy problem where hardly anyone reads books anymore, especially history. And we all know the quote, those who don't learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. So we do need to be a society of people that reads. I think it's, uh, especially as a children's book author, it's great to hear that kids are, are reading more now and going to be more engaged. Um, but that gives me a little bit of hope and something I think we can hopefully continue. No, that's great. I, I can attest my, my daughter picked up reading in a huge way this year, went through uh, at least 12 novels, um, just really, really put them down and also picked up chess and can beat me three out of four games that we play. Uh, so I will always take that as a silver lining for the year. Um, I'll, go, I'll go next for me. Uh, so this is bad news for most people, but the crypto market wiped out uh, <laughs> this, past, this past week. Um, so there Don't was, rub it in. There was, I know, I'm so sorry to rub it in, but there was a, a crash of about $1 trillion in market value for cryptocurrency. Just tons of losses. Um, Bitcoin, which is 40% of the crypto market, took about a $30,000 uh, dive. Um, it was huge. Now, it has since rebounded in the past 24 hours of when we are doing the show. But my good news is pulled out one week ahead of time and got myself some nice Ooh. things. And so it's just it's one of those things where I had to learn how that whole market 
works. I'd never done investing. Um, I had never had stocks before the past year as well. And I also decided to try doing small dollar crypto buys, you know, in the spirit of like diversifying, right? And so I, I think the one thing I learned this year, which I just wanted to share with people, was like, if you're wanting to find out about how stock markets work, if you're wanting to find out how cryptocurrency works, just little bits at a time, just try small dollar stuff, things that you'll never miss. The best way to invest in anything is money that you will not miss at the end of the day. $5 out of every check going into small dollar stocks as well as crypto. And then you see what works. And at the end of the day, I've got stuff in this app called Stash, Coinbase, Prize Pool, and there's just all these different services of which you can save and invest money and make a little bit of money. A good best practice for anybody. Sounds like some Steven, passion you don't driven education. Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you don't need Elon Musk to be giving away Dogecoin. Sounds like you can uh, give away your own. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. I'm here. I'm here. And they didn't teach you all that in the public school system, did they? No, they didn't. I remember, <laughs> I remember learning about investing in my public school in seventh grade. They taught us like the stock market for two days, like actually got on the computers and, and worked on it. But I, it all went in one ear and out the other. <laughs> yeah, it's not the same thing as actually doing it with your with your own money. With your own money. Yeah, don't treat it like Vegas. Just $1 <laughs> at a time. Yeah. So uh, last bit of good information. Uh, I've kind of hinted at it earlier, but look, the teachers unions have provided essentially free advertising for the school choice movement over the past year. And, you know, look, if anybody's on Twitter, just look at Randy Weingarten's Twitter feed. She's the president of the second largest teachers union in the United States. And every time she tweets, I think she strengthens the the <laughs> the. the, the the push for school choice more and more because it's just completely tone deaf and uh, really shows that she's really trying to backpedal and change the narrative on the whole school reopening debate over the past year and, and what's happened with the teachers unions. And look, on, on the ground, over 13 states have already passed legislation to fund students as opposed to systems. That's huge. This is the year of school choice, 2021, and it's the teachers union's own fault. And two of the biggest ones in particular were West Virginia and Kentucky. They'll have this two largest education savings account programs in the nation. They essentially went from zero to a hundred in a year when it comes to school choice. And that's going to be a great thing for thousands of children across the nation. Thank you, Randy Weingarten. Uh, so this has been Right Now Stephen Kent. Thank you so much for watching. We got new shows every single Thursday and videos throughout the week. You can follow us by subscribing or liking us on all the social media platforms at RightlyAJ. We will see you next week.